We'll hear argument next in Case 06-939, Chamber of Commerce versus Brown. Mr. Goldsmith. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In AB 1889, California defunded employer speech about union organizing because the state's labor policy is that such speech interferes with employee free choice. The federal policy is that employer speech enhances employee free choice. California's labor policy is designed to discourage exactly what the NLRA promotes. The fact that California implemented its labor policy as an exercise of its spending authority is irrelevant under Gould. If the Why do you say the labor policy promotes it? It certainly permits it, but what, what, what? Well, Your Honor, I think that uh, if, if you look at the exceptions to the policy, in particular those that allow state funds to be sent, spent for uh, things that clearly facilitate union organizing, for example, and it's not prohibited under uh, ABA. No, no, I'm talking about the, the, the federal policy. You say the federal policy promotes this employer speech. Uh, why do you say it promotes it? It clearly permits it. It clearly does not discourage it. But, but is that the same as promoting it? I think, I think uh, it is, Your Honor. I think that the, the, the cases of this Court and the cases of the NLRB have made clear that free, open, robust debate is important on all matters having to do with the uh, union-employer uh, relationship. That was certainly uh, what the Court noted in Lynn. Uh, the fact that uh, employer speech is, I think, absolutely critical to an employee being uh, uh, well enough informed to make an informed judgment about whether to say yes or no to a union uh, further underscores the point. A union election uh, or any situation involving a, a contest of any sort between a union and an employer is something on which uh, both parties uh, should have the right to speak and to speak in a non-coercive way. Uh, and I think that clearly the National Labor Relations Act promotes that. Then why did Congress in several statutes have a provision from which California copied when it enacted this measure? In several statutes, uh, the Congress has said this federal money will go to the grantee if the grantee says it will not use any money that we give them uh, to assist, promote, or deter union organizing. Your Honor, those are three statutes that uh, the Court below and respondents rely on heavily. Uh, those statutes, first of all, I don't think in any way reflect the meaning uh, or the sense of Congress that employer speech is to be inhibited in connection with union, or union organizing. Uh, those uh, in no way, I think, reflect the overall intent of Congress. Moreover, nothing in those statutes uh, in any way undercuts the basic principles that uh, but they are, But they run against that principle because they say at least under these programs, I think there were more than three. Wasn't there was, Medicare? Medicare was the, f the fourth. I believe it was a regulation, not a statute. But uh, certainly um, uh, in, in doing that, uh, Congress didn't um, in any way modify the NLRA. Uh, there's, there's nothing in the legislative history of those statutes that suggests that uh, this Court's principles as laid down in Machinists and Garmin were in any way to be inhibited. And moreover, what Congress can do uh, certainly doesn't mean that the states have the, the same right. Well, yes. those, those grantees would be subject to the NLRA, so as to them, it is modified. Well, it, it's, it's not modified in the same way that AB 1889 modifies it, Your Honor. First of all, uh, under those statutes, 
there is no requirement that funds be segregated. Uh, there is no possibility of uh, litigation, uh, treble damages to follow. There's no possibility of uh, attorney's fees to the prevailing party. So those statutes are, I think, really unique and um, don't in any way change the basic principle that I think uh, all labor lawyers would agree, and that is that uh, under the National Labor Relations Act, all parties to a union election or any issue between a union and an employer have the right to speak in a non-coercive way. Say, speak. Go ahead. Speak. Speak. Just not on our nickel. Well, I, I think the, that's clearly what they say, but it's not that simple given the way the statute operates, Your Honor. Uh, they also say, by the way, uh, as you answer this, I'd keep this in mind. You, you may be right about it being too much of an administrative burden, the treble damages, etc. but they've made major concessions here, and they say that's a matter to be worked out on remand. And it may be that they have to be very careful about inhibiting your speech. So let's go back over those administrative provisions one by one. But they're suggesting to us, as I read it, don't do that now. If I may respond to both questions, Your Honor. First of all, the notion that one can uh, use your own money, uh, to use the vernacular, and just uh, use it to speak, doesn't answer the most basic question that this statute presents, and that is that whether you can or you can't, and I'll get to that in a moment, the fact is that California has regulated, used its spending power to make labor policy, something that this Court has made clear in Gould and in, in various other cases uh, it, it cannot do. But uh, even getting past that, which I think is the end of the case, um, there are certain employers, certain petitioners here, who are 100 percent funded uh, by the State. Um, they uh, have no ability as a result. When I say funded by the state, I mean they depend for their income on state programs, let's say. They have no ability, none, to speak to employees. Well, the state has that's, effectively not the, that's not the state's fault. Well, uh, the state's argument to that, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, is that uh, that's a, uh, a, a free market choice. They can either do business uh, in California or not. And uh, I would refer the Or they court. can do business with other entities besides the state. They can, Your Honor, that's true, but that doesn't answer the question for those that, uh, because of the service that they provide, such as under Medi-Cal, uh, they have chosen to be in business with the state. They are being forced to make an election between doing business with the state or giving up an NLRA-protected right. That is, uh, if you have, you have a, a, a park service in the state and you have a hot dog stand there, it runs the hot dogs, it's private, uh, but uh, the, the state pays for everything. The state pays for everything. And it happens that in the grant, they have no place for talking about the union. You're saying they are required to add to the legislation a special grant so that the employer can speak of the union? Well, a grant pr presents a slightly different problem. Or Why? Why? Because they say here we're talking about 100 percent money that comes out of the state treasury, and all we're saying is use that money for the state purposes, and those purposes do not include talking one way or the other about the union. Well, that may be the case for a particular program or a particular grant, but that's not what AB 1889 does, Your Honor. AB 1889 affects, on an across-the-board basis, every single contractor, every single employer uh, doing business with the state of California. So if if the state could show that it were making that it was making that policy decision for some fiscal purpose, then there might be an argument. But that's conceitedly not the case here. I, don't, no I thought you you are bringing a facial challenge, and 
I thought that you must show, not that the State must show. And the State, the simple argument is, look, we're paying for certain things, and we want to get what we paid for. There are a lot of other things that we could have paid for, but when we want to get, say, uh, a training program for elementary school teachers. Now, that has nothing to do with union organizing. We don't want to pay for union organizing. That might be an argument that the State could advance credibly if, in fact, this statute had anything to do with saving money. Uh, it doesn't. Uh, the Court below uh, unanimously concluded that this uh, was not anything that uh, had anything to do with the fiscal issues. It had solely to do with making labor policy. Uh, and as far as a facial challenge is concerned, Your Honor, the, the fact is that this statute was applied to the petitioners. Uh, the petitioners where, where did the lower court say it has nothing to do with the state getting what it is paying for and not paying for things it doesn't want to pay for? Well, Your Honor, that's, of course, my vernacular for what the court said. But the, what the court did say was that the state uh, passed, the legislature passed, and the governor signed AB 1889 solely for labor policy purposes. And that's clear from the preamble to the statute. The preamble to the statute says it is the policy of the State of California, so many words, that employer speech interferes with employee free choice. There's nothing in the record, there's no attempt at all to suggest that anything uh, uh, achieved by 1889 saves the State a dime. So That's an argument. Out, it would come out differently if the statute has said we want to get what we pay for and we don't we choose not to pay for labor relations. Well, if the state could establish that it was acting as a proprietor within the meaning of this court's decision in Boston Harbor and establish as a proprietor that it was doing something to advance a fiscal purpose, then perhaps uh, a statute so worded would survive a preemption challenge. But that is clearly not what happened here. Uh, there's n no evidence uh, that that happened, um, and that is not the purpose or the effect of AB 1889. And as to the facial challenge uh, issue, if I could answer both uh, Justice Breyer and, and, and Your Honor, the fact is that this statute was applied to the petitioners. The petitioners went into district court, and they said, this applies to us. It's burdensome for us to, uh, to do uh, to do what the statute purports to require us to do. The district court granted an injunction and so on. But that's — whether it's a facial challenge or an as-applied challenge, I think, really makes little difference here. The Ninth Circuit found that AB 1889 was not preempted as a matter of law. Our position is that AB 1889 is preempted as a matter of law. The purpose and effect are clear. Sending this back to remand uh, to develop facts or trying to sort this out on whether it's a facial or as-applied as challenge really doesn't change the basic fact that the Court below, as I said, decided this is a matter of law. And NLRA preemption generally raises purely legal issues. Uh, the legal issue is whether or not the federal scheme has been interfered with. And I think that any fair reading of this statute uh, makes it abundantly clear that that's exactly what happened. California was very open about it. The preamble says precisely that. We believe that employer speech interferes with employee free choice. So they passed a statute that uh, is designed to and does severely inhibit an employer's ability to speak. That's what they wanted to do. That's what they did. And that interferes with the, uh, did, the federal did they, policy. Did, did they say something different from what Congress said in those three or four statutes that were mentioned earlier? 
In terms of using the words assist, promote, or deter, those words appear in those statutes in that Medicare regulation or statute or component of the Medicare statute, and those appear also um, in, in, in uh, AB 1889. But, uh, you know, again, Your Honor, from my perspective, I think, uh, you know, it's clear that nothing in those statutes changed the fundamental policy that uh, speech, free speech, for both employers and for unions is something to be encouraged in the context of a union organizing drive for a number of reasons, not the least of which employees are allowed and entitled to hear both sides of the picture before being put in a position where they have to make a choice. Uh, California believes that employer speech is a bad thing. AB 1889 is a reflection of that. They believe it's bad because it interferes with employee free choice. If you take the example of a nursing home that participates in the Medi-Cal program, what does this require? They, they have to segregate the funds that they get from the state, and they can't use — is it the case they can't use any of those funds for uh, union-related speech or just the portion that does not represent profits? Uh, they can't use any of those funds. Um, the, the notion that profits uh, — the statute doesn't say a word about profits, and, of course, if the statute were to say something about profits, it would make the segregation of accounts problem in the statute even worse than it already is. But what, it, what a nursing home has to do is to track every single possible circumstance under which uh, an employee of the nursing home engaged in speech that was designed to assist, which won't happen very often, presumably promote or deter union organizing. And let me try to bring it down to what really happens in a union organizing campaign. This is, by and large, a seven-day-a-week, 24-hour-a-day operation. There are any number of encounters during the course of a union organizing drive that the employer responsible for, for complying with AB 1889 may never even know about. So, for example, if an employee goes to his supervisor and says, um, Union X is trying to organize the nursing home. What do you know about Union X? And the supervisor says, well, uh, the only thing I know about Union X is they used to represent the nursing home across the street, and then that nursing home is now closed. Now, that may be a purely factual statement, purely true statement. Uh, that's certainly what the employer would argue. What the union might argue is that, no, no, you have to put that in context, and that was a statement designed to deter the employee from voting for Union X. Now, if the employer guesses wrong on that issue, that is, the employer says, well, this is factual, it's not something designed to deter uh, union organizing, uh, he is subject, under the statute, um, to litigation for not having segregated uh, and I don't know what he would really segregate. The statute's unclear. Do you segregate the time? Do you, do you account for the time that the employer spent talking the supervisor? Even if he guesses right, he's subject to the litigation. I'm sorry? If he, you said if he guesses wrong, he's subject to the litigation. He's subject to litigation even if he guesses right. That's, that's correct, Your Honor. And, and uh, unlike the prevailing uh, party, um, uh, as the defendant, uh, the prevailing party will, of course, uh, the prevailing plaintiff and the prevailing interveners will recover uh, reasonable costs of attorney's fees. The prevailing defendant under this statute does not. Uh, um, there's, there's no question that um, there's, it's, it's even impossible for an employer under the situation that I described to effectively account 
for that encounter that I described between an employer and employee. Do you take the 30 seconds that it took and allocate 30 seconds of the, the salary? Do you take the overtime for the week that, uh, that the uh, supervisor might have worked? Uh, there's really uh, no way um, that the statute allows for that to happen, and it, I think, underscores the degree to which this uh, statute interferes dramatically with uh, NLRA-protected rights. If there are no further questions, I'd like to reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Counsel. You've got a friend on the other side. Oh, I'm still. sorry. That's all right. <laughs> forgot about that. Mr. Hungar. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The National Labor Relations Act manifests congressional intent to encourage free debate on issues dividing labor and management. State laws that restrict speech regarding unionization frustrate that fundamental national policy and are therefore preempted, as this Court held in Lynn. What about the spending clause question? You, uh, the Federal Government has a lot of programs where they use their own money and they come with a lot of conditions, um, and you, your office frequently argues that those are justified under the spending clause. Why isn't what California is doing here similarly justified? Well, first of all, obviously, Your Honor, the National Labor Relations Act does not constrain Congress's ability to impose particular restrictions. It does constrain the state's ability to use their spending power to regulate, as this Court held in Gould. And well, in how, how do we tell whether they're using their spending power to regulate as opposed to simply attaching conditions to what's done with state funds? The Court has identified several factors that it has used to distinguish regulatory from proprietary Conduct, first and foremost, as this Court said in uh, Boston Harbor, it looks to whether the State is um, acting in order to effectuate policy or is instead seeking to achieve uh, cost savings, program efficiency, and the like. In addition, the Court looks to whether the measure — Well, in a uh, case like Rust versus Sullivan, is the Federal Government in — uh, acting to promote policy, or is it simply uh, acting in a proprietary capacity? Well, of course, the, that question did not come up in Rust against Sullivan because there was no NLRA preemption issue there. And the, the question, well, I'm talking, the about, was, talking about spending power versus regulatory power in general. But what the Court did say in Rust is that the, is that the government has a legitimate policy interest in advancing its preference for life, in that case, that, the, that Congress was entitled to advance. The problem here is that the policy interest that the state is advancing, a policy interest that says employer speech regarding unionization interferes with employee free choice, is a policy that is directly contrary to the federal policy under the Act as Congress and the Board have repeatedly recognized and as this Court has repeatedly recognized. So there's no legitimate interest supporting what the state is doing here. It's, a, it's an interest directly contrary to federal policy, unlike in Rust and the other First Amendment. Well, give me an example of a spending clause provision that would be acceptable, not in necessarily in this context, but in general, because you would say, well, that's not trying to implement a policy at all? Well, if the, uh, one of the amicus briefs in this case points to a rule that the state has adopted recently, apparently in the Medi-Cal context, which says that they will only reimburse administrative costs of hospitals uh, up to the 50th percentile of costs incurred by similar facilities. That's obviously not attempting to regulate any particular 
labor speech or any other type of conduct. It's simply saying we're only going to regulate this category, this broad general category of costs, to, to a certain level. It's not targeted at a specific category of disfavored speech because the, the, the state disfavors that speech. It's simply attempting to save money. That's, that clearly would not be preempted, even though it might have a disproportionate impact on a particular hospital that's engaged in a, in a costly uh, anti-immunization. Would your answer be the same if, if and I hide uh, contrary to fact, perhaps, that a magic administrative scheme were invented so there was no administrative problem. We could identify with the greatest of ease each penny that came from the state and which did not. And then the state said, you know, we have, do have a policy here. We actually favor labor unions in our state. Some other state might have a different policy. But we think it best that the state officials involved when their company, when their department's being organized, just say nothing. We think it best that the employers that we pay 100 percent to, given their, their uh, strong funding by the state, that they got to find some money elsewhere, and those we pay 50 percent to better use the private money to speak, not use our money. Now, no administrative burden whatsoever, but that's the policy. Now, is there some rule or statute that would make that unlawful or preempted that policy? Justice Breyer, I think, I'm assuming in your hypothetical that this hypothetical law, not, in addition to opposing no administrative burdens, also doesn't have the strict liability of travel damages. No, no. all it, these things which I, I think they're asking us on the other side to leave for another day, none of them exist. They all work perfectly. It's only the magic system has been developed to, without any extraneous burden, segregate the state money from the non-state money, and the only rule is don't use the state money when you speak. That's the only rule. Justice By Breyer, the way, other states have exactly opposite rules. They're right-to-work states. They give you extra state money. So, so, so uh, 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 but, but uh, one state has the uh, this rule, and obviously that would be a very different case. And a ah, well, if it's a very different case then why aren't they right to say this is a facial challenge, leave that very different case which raises all the issues, to be worked out when we discover? Why do you say it's a very different case, Mr. Hungar? I I don't really understand it. It's a very different case in the sense that, in this case, it's every one of the factors that this Court has looked to to determine regulatory versus proprietary, in this case, cuts clearly in favor of the conclusion of the unanimous Court of Appeals, all 15 judges, that this is regulatory. It's punitive. It's, it's government-wide. It's not program or contract-specific. It's, it's not the kind of conduct that private uh, com- entities engage in. All of the factors, and, and it's expressly as well as obviously in effect intended to disfavor a particular kind of speech that Congress favors. So everything cuts in favor of it being regulatory, whereas in your hypothetical, most of those considerations would not. However, I think it is still the case that in that hypothetical, what the state is doing is regulating for labor policy reasons. It's disfavoring a particular type of speech. The state does not have any obligation under the Act to fund unionization speech, but what it can't do under the Act is deny a government benefit because of a, a labor policy. That's what this Court held in Nash. My right to work example equally uh, uh, equally preempted? Yes, I think it would be. But again, so they could not say in Utah, to take a state at random, the, the uh, 
uh, here we have government grants and there's overhead, and we would like you to spend this overhead. Indeed, you're certainly free to spend this overhead uh, in uh, speaking as much as you want, uh, should there be an organizing campaign. Don't worry about spending the government part. Can they do that? You say no, they couldn't? Well, I, I took your, the Utah example to be one where the state was somehow mandating this particular expenditure. If the state is simply is not taking is not it's taking a hands-off approach. It's hard to characterize it as regulation. But what this court held in Nash, what this court held in Gould, what this court held in Levatas is when a, when the state is denying benefits, even though it might there might be plenty of legitimate reasons that that might enable it to deny benefits. If it's denying benefits for the purpose of advancing labor policy, in an area where Congress has said there is to be no regulation. That's preempted, and that's, it's doubly preempted here, where the labor policy that the, that the state is advancing is directly contrary to the federal labor policy that Congress and the board have enunciated. And with respect to the facial versus as applied, or, or the, the, the suggestion that somehow because you might be able to craft a statute that would achieve some of the effects of this statute in a, in a non-preempted way, that doesn't make this statute not facially preempted. This statute has the punitive pr- provisions, the, the strict liability, treble damages, the, the, the segregation requirements that's virtually impossible to apply in practice, the, the clear express admission of a, of a regulatory policy that's contrary to federal policy. This is the statute that is in front of the court. This is the statute that is facially unconstitutional, and that's the issue that the court should decide in order to correct the Ninth Circuit's error, which said it's both facially and as applied immune from preemption challenge, which we what, think is What wrong. policy was Congress implementing in the federal funding statute that California copied? Your Honor, California did not copy any federal statutes. None of the federal statutes has a segregation requirement. None of them imposes strict liability, punitive damages. But they do say that the money is not to be spent to assist, promote, or deter union organizing. Yes, there are three federal statutes that impose use restrictions. Why did they do that? It's not clear why they did that, other than obviously they were choosing not to compensate those particular kinds of costs as well as others. Congress is entitled to carve out particular exceptions to the general non-regulatory provisions of the Act, just as it has done in Section 8C, where they've carved out coercive employer and union speech for regulation, even though other speech is to be unregulated. It's important to understand also that the general policy in federal grant programs is to the contrary. There's no such restriction in the vast majority of federal grant programs involving the, the vast majority of federal grant money. But Those you don't, there's no reason, rhyme or reason, to why they would have done in these three statutes what you say is flatly contrary to national labor relations policy. Well, it's not contrary to national labor relations policy because Congress has chosen to create an exception, and it has the right to do so. The state does not. It was labor policy. I mean, we we have to acknowledge it was labor policy in these other cases, just a different labor policy that the the federal government wanted, right? In in a specific program, which obviously the state's law does not apply to those programs. It applies to state spending across the board. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Hungar. Mr. Gottesman. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. Until this statute was enacted, California was in the anomalous position that it was financing speech on one side of union organizing uh, campaigns, but not on the other, because most grants, programs, contracts include employment costs as an allowable cost. 
Um, well, so it, was anyone who hired a company to do any kind of work, right? Because the federal policy meant that they couldn't try to restrict what activities the uh, company engaged in with respect to union organizing. Um, yes, I mean, a private employer could have said the same things that the state said, don't use our money to do this, and they would not have violated anything by doing that. I'm, I'm not sure why you characterize California as, as financing one side of, of a debate, because and this, I, I think, is sort of the nub of the disagreement between the two sides here. Their, their argument is that uh, a, a, a state can determine what it wants to buy with its money. But what California is doing is telling its contractor what it can do with the money after the state has got what it paid for. That's not and, correct, and, Your Honor. And that's the that I understand. That's what they the claim. Distinction between a case like Rusk and 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 a case like this. Right. They're trying but, to control their profits as opposed to determining what they get, what you get for your money. And and how do you respond to that? Well, that's true. If it were the case that the state's statute said, even after you have earned this money by performing all the service we asked. You still can't, and it's not, therefore, now your money, you uh, can't use it. That is not what the statute means. That is, the state well, has is, been is very Is there any case it. in which California claims that it has not gotten the service that it paid for as a result of a position which an employer, a, a grantee employer, took on, on a unionization? Well, there haven't been any cases decided under this statute. But what the Court of Appeals pointed out is that the petitioners did not move for summary judgment on the ground that you're forbidding us from using our money. They moved for summary judgment solely on the ground that it was the obligation of the state to give them money that they could use for these purposes, and that it was no, wrong. No, it's not quite accurate. They moved for summary judgment on the ground that what the state was doing was, in effect, regulating labor relations right. and that that activity was preempted. Right. Well, yes, on that core issue, they said, to, to tell us that we cannot use state funds for this purpose, while they are still state funds, is to regulate us. And we well, submit that that is wrong. This why, is why do you say, while they are still state funds? The, 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 the money that, the, uh, that any employer is using, I presume, to the extent that it can be identified, is money in the employer's pocket. Uh, and the, the only claim that California would have, it seems to me, from the preemption argument is uh, that, in fact, we are buying a form of speech or a form of promotion of labor policy when we contract with social service agencies or whatnot. But I don't understand that to be California's argument at all. No, our argument, let's take one of the two provisions that the district court struck down and that petitioners argue properly struck down, said that when we give you grant money, don't use that money for this purpose. Now, the state gives them the money up front before they have provided the services. Uh, and that's true yeah, universally. But they give them grant money. Let's, let's say it's a, it's a grant rather than a contract, and I assume that's the, you know, the point you're making. When they give them grant money, I assume they're giving them grant money in order to do, order to perform whatever kind of service or function the, the agency is devoted to performing. Correct. Not to 
not to enforce labor policy of one sort or another, uh, but to uh, promote the arts or, or conservation or whatever the organization does. Uh, and um, there's, there's no argument here that the organization is, is failing to promote conservation or the arts or whatever. Uh, and, and for that reason, California isn't getting what it's paying for. Uh, the argument is that whatever California has to uh, — I'm sorry, whatever the organization has to spend, uh, uh, say, on its labor relations, which is something that is left over from its promotion of the arts, cannot be spent except in accordance with California policy. Well, first, if they don't spend all the grant money on these prescribed purposes, they have to give it back to the state. Because yeah, but grants doesn't the state possibly. assume that they, they are entitled to some overhead cost, which would include the cost of their employee rela- uh, managing employee right. relations? Right. And that's so your, that wouldn't be money left over. That would Right. But that, Your Honor, is where the uh, concern that the state um, was addressing comes in. Traditionally, when the state gave grant money, one of the permissible uses of that money was for the costs of employees who had to perform the grant. And without this limitation, that would have included the employer spending the money to combat unions. That would be it could arguably be a legitimate cost. So is the argument that the employer in fa- that the employer is in fact devoting less of the grant money to the purpose of the grant, well, so that it falls within rust? Yes. Well, our, our position is certainly rust. That is, uh, the state is entitled to prescribe what it is prepared to pay for in a grant and what not. And it is not required to subsidize the employer's campaign the, against the, a union the, or for a union, for that matter. The difference between this and rust is that the federal government in rust was a assuredly uh, following a federal policy. Right. But it was a federal policy that the federal government had every right to implement. We do not want to support abortions. Right. Uh, The issue here is whether the policy that California is trying to implement, namely, we do not want the employer to, in its view, disrupt the uh, labor management relations by uh, by opposing union union unionization. That that is the issue. Whether that is a policy that California can uh, can implement. That is not the state's policy, and uh, the uh, preamble oh, the, to this statute does not say the state disapproves of employers spending money. Well, the what policy said, the policy is they don't want employers to talk about unionization. No, they don't want them to spend the employer's money, the, the state's money, to talk about unionization. Why? Because it's wasting the money or because that is their, because their, the their state wants, policy? Because the state wants to be neutral. That's right. And that, then, the right then, not then that, then that, it seems to me, uh, cuts the, the feet off your argument of a moment ago that, in fact, uh, the state's concern is that it's getting less of what it thought it was getting for with its grant because more is being spent on labor policy. And now, it seems to me, you're, you're saying, no, that's not the case. No, it I, is simply the fact that the time that the employer spends in talking with employees, whatever the subject is, involves a policy that California uh, does not want to support, and therefore California prohibits 
them to spending that time for purely policy reasons. Well, it prohibits them from using the state's money to do it. Of course they can use their own money to do it. No, but your argument a moment ago is that they were using the state's money because, in fact, they were providing less of the service that the grant was for and spending that in, in conversation with employees about labor unions. And it seems to me your answer to Justice Scalia was inconsistent with that. Your answer to Justice Scalia, as I understood it, was it is simply that they do not want that policy being implemented by anyone who gets any money from the state within that state. Um, I don't think I said inconsistently. Uh, what I said was previously it was within the permissible scope of a grant to spend money in an organizing campaign, either assisting, promoting, or deterring unionization. The state is now saying that will no longer be. We don't really want to spend grant money on that, and our reason is that we think we, the state's money should not be used by either side in that union organization. Well, how, is that, how is that different from saying there's a federal rule, an OSHA requirement, you've got to have certain protective devices or whatever, and the state says, well, we want to get the most out of our money. So our money cannot be used to put in these federally required safety devices. You can use somebody else's money for that. Why isn't that the same thing here? They're saying there's a federal labor policy that allows this, and we don't want our money to be spent uh, implementing that policy or pursuant to that policy? Because there is no federal labor policy that requires states to use state treasury money to finance a party who's engaged in this debate. That's why this is just like Rust. It's just like, why it's like Gould. I mean, there was a case where a state uh, uh, used state state money, no contracting with any, with any company that's been uh, uh, convicted of unfair labor practices three times. Uh, strictly state contracting policy. We just don't want to spend our money dealing with such a person. But there we're saying we won't deal with you. That's, that would classically, if the state in this case said no employer who opposes unions can have a state contract, that would be good. It would also be a violation of the but First but Amendment. Why wouldn't that be the state's managing its own money? It's our money. Well, but it we is just not. We want to deal with, with, with uh, uh, people who oppose unions. No, there's a huge difference between saying don't use our money to do something, and saying we won't deal with you even when you use your own money to do it. The implication that this but is But on your out- argument, there is no your own money. You're saying that everything that the grantee gets in a grant situation is the government's money. Correct. So that that distinction that you just made in answer to Justice Scalia could not be drawn. Well, if they have their own money, they can spend it on that. They just can't use it. No, the but the money. hypothesis of this whole argument is that we are talking with a grantee who is fully funded by the, I thought, fully funded by the state. And I thought that was your strongest argument. So that, so that this alternative, well, you can use your own money is an alternative which, you know, by the very hypothesis that we're arguing on, will never exist. Well, if we have a a grantee who has no other money, that doesn't mean the state has an obligation to provide them money to oppose unionization. It would be very odd to believe, and this is, after all, implied preemption, that it was Congress's intent, without mentioning it, to say that it is the obligation of states to provide funding to employers. Mr. Gottesby, can I ask sort of a background question, be sure I understand uh, your position. Am I correct in assuming 
that if the State of California had its labor relations agency make it an unfair, con- unfair labor practice to engage in this uh, uh, employer speech described here, that that would be preempted? Employer speech with its own money? Of course yes. that would be preempted. Absolutely preempted. Okay. Uh, if not preempted, it would certainly be a violation of the First Amendment as well to punish them for engaging in speech. Well, if they, if they adopted the rule that the Federal Labor Board applied prior to the Taft-Hartley exactly. Act, that's what I'm asking you. Exactly, yes. That would be preempted. Of course that would be okay. preempted. I want to be sure. Our position, however, is that it's quite different to say that the National Labor Relations Act requires the state to pay for these activities. And why, no, why, but it does, re- it does require that this, uh, er- arguably requires that this area of, of uh, uh, combat between labor and management be unregulated. Right. And this is not regulation for the very reasons that this Court in Regan, in Rust, and in a whole line of cases had said that it is not regulation to simply say, we, the government, are not going to pay for this activity. That's all that California is saying in this case. We are not going to pay for it. It's the policy of the state not to interfere in these union organizing drives. Therefore, and this is the precise words of the the, uh, preamble, for this reason the state should not subsidize. Well, I think if your reason for not paying for this activity is that you don't like this activity. That's not true. I call that I call that regulating the act. That is not at all the case, Your Honor. There's nothing in this preamble. The, the other side keeps characterizing the preamble, which they don't include in their statutory appendix, as saying we don't like the employer doing it. That's not what it says. Well, it's on Would page you allow three. the employer to engage in all other employee relations? And you're willing that that, that can be done without — the one thing the employer can't do is speak out against the union. This is because well, you speak don't. out for or against. This is content discrimination, not viewpoint discrimination. And it is content discrimination uh, whose purpose is to keep the state's funds out of this area of context. The taxpayers' monies should not be spent supporting one side and not the other in these disputes. This court in the Ling case, and I want to quote this sentence because this is the key to why a policy of neutrality with respect to the use of the state's money is not you know, um, uh, regulate. We, this was a case in which, to be sure, it was the federal government, was denying food stamps to strikers. And the claim was that was a violation of their associational rights under the First Amendment. Everybody else who's, who, who satisfies the test for food stamps is entitled to them, but we're not going to give them to strikers. And when the federal government is asked why is that, they said, well, we don't want to get involved, to be sure, if we gave them the money that would make it likely the strike would go on longer. But we're not being anti-union. We just want to be hands-off. We want to be — we don't want federal money spent to, to help one side or the other in this labor dispute. And what this Court said was, we have little trouble in concluding that that provision is rationally related to the legitimate governmental objective of avoiding undue favoritism to one side or the other in private labor disputes. Now, that's the core of what this statute is about. The labor so unions you're came saying it doesn't give favoritism to one side or another. It just takes the state's money out. So it, that depends as a practical matter on the view that there are at least some employers who would be arguing in favor of unionization. If well, it wouldn't matter have, if they were arguing for or against. The point is that — Yeah, but I, my point is that there are precious few who argue in favor of it. Right. 
Well, that may well be true. But the point is, when they're arguing against the union, until this statute, state money was being used to argue against the union. The union was not getting any state money to respond. The state was funding one side of this dispute. And the notion that it was an implied purpose of Congress in the National Labor Relations Act to compel states to fund one side of a dispute with a subsidy is would be remarkable. Well, when the state pays a program participant, let's again take the case of a nursing home, for uh, providing services to patients who are covered by Medi-Cal. When money get, is paid to the nursing home, it's your position that remains the state's money? If, this, if the nursing home the, — the, the, there are a number of different ways in which this money is paid to the state. If the situation is the nursing home first provides the services and when they have done so bills the state for the money, that's not state funds. Once they receive the money, since they put the money up in front to provide the service, they're being reimbursed for it. That's not the state's funds. It's the state's funds if the state gives them the money up front, uh, as is true universally with respect to grants. We give you this money. This money now, because of this statute, its purposes are limited so that they do not include engaging in uh, one side or the other in union organizing. If you have your own money, feel free to spend your own money on that. But we're not giving you this money for that purpose. Well, let, me, let me just be clear. The, the statute with reference to state contractors, which is the $50,000 statute, and the statute uh, with reference to private employers, which is the $10,000 statute, in all of those cases, the law is applicable only if the money is paid before all the work is done? Yes. If you look at the contract one, which is not actually before the court because nobody had standing, the district court ruled to raise it. It says the state funds to assist, promote, or defer per union organizing during the life of the contract are not to be spent on this. So once the contract's done, that is well, once what if you have a question of when the contract is done is different from the question of when the money is yeah. paid. Of course. Right. He's asking you, about when you, the money is paid. So if you pay the money up front and you say, here is your money do to, to do the contract. Well, what about the situation in, in which the contract runs for a year and you bill monthly? On your theory, the contract is still going on, uh, and, well, and yet there is, there is no prepayment. And yet I assume, uh, on, on your argument, they would be just as bound by the California policy uh, as if they got 100 percent payment up front. Well, that, that's a question about the meaning of a provision that isn't at issue in this case. The ones that are issue in this Well, case, do you concede that if they um, — if, if all they did uh, under a 12-month contract uh, was, was bill for services rendered every past 30 days — that there would be uh, either no application uh, of the California law or that the application would be preempted? Um, that might well be the case, but we don't have an interpretation of I'm that sorry, provision that, of the that California was an, law. That was an either-or, I thought, which, <laughs> yeah. which might be the case. Oh, I say it might be the case. It's like it's saying yes. Right, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, but again, that issue isn't here. What we've got here are programs, some of which the state advances the money, in some of which it pays after the services have been completed. Is this conceded on that point that on page 27 and 25 and 29 of the AFL-CIO brief, I took the statements there where it say organizations, namely organizations, even those that receive 100 percent of their money from the state, are free to use their profits 
Right. Or if there are, or any other non-state money. Right. And, and we, the state respondents, say the same thing in our brief. We say it at pages 26 to 27. The state maintains a legitimate interest in program funds until, until such time as the program participant has provided the state with a service the state has funded. So if you sell them tables and they write you a check, the state, for the tables, at that point the check is yours? Of course. There's no question about that, because that, in that case, that would be covered by the contract provision that isn't here. But it says once the contract's completed, it's your money. So the concern here only is that they not use our money. The state's brief well, what also says that if there's a warranty, and the warrant, what if there's a warranty for another year? Say if these tables break, you have to replace them. Well, that's a question of, remember, neither of the lower courts has interpreted the statute. The statute has never been interpreted. That's, and, and what the Court of Appeals said is that's because the argument that you all have been asking me about was not raised in summary judgment by the petitioners. Their core argument is the state has an obligation to subsidize our speech. And that's the only issue they brought up on summary judgment. Because Judge Beezer, in a panel decision, said, oh, look at all these, quote, as he called them, horribles that will come from this. Judge Beezer got into all these issues. The accounting would be burdensome, that it's going to be the employer's own money. And what the majority said is, number one, that's not here. And number two, they said this, um, I believe it's on page 34A of the uh, appendix, but I'm not certain of the, of the I, mean, I can tell you the exact page. Uh, yes, it's page 34A. The dissent's parade of horribles goes far beyond the scope of plaintiff's facial challenge. That is the challenge they brought on summary judgment. The district court made no findings, nor is there evidence that this statute, quote, co-ops the payment for goods and services and profits realized under a contract. What is your recommendation as to, we've heard today, too, in, in the briefs, it's there. I, I, I put the thing that I've heard as, well, the example with the tables is an example of it. When does the profit actually accrue? Uh, is there a treble damage provision that makes this much worse? Are there administrative requirements that in practice make it impossible? Uh, is it administered in such a way that the employee we heard about would just not know what to say, the employer's representative? Well, All those things could be problems, and you say, well, they haven't been dealt with yet, and your recommendation as to what we should do is, is what? Is affirm. Because all the Court has said is the motion for summary judgment was improperly granted. And if we did that, how would all these problems be worked out? I mean, how would the arguments that you, they think, they're far too burdensome, you think they're not and can be done properly, right. how does that get worked out? Well, first of all, let's talk about the burdens, the accounting burdens, which are actually quite minimal under Medicaid, because they already have to do this because the federal Medicaid requires them to segregate, to, to, to account for which were allowable expenditures and which not in a very detailed accounting form. Uh, and, of course, the federal Medicaid says that this is not an allowable expenditure. So they have to do this anyway. Half this money is federal and half state. You're not going to go through all these one by one, are you? Pardon? I, I no, no. I just wanted to give an example of that. But with respect to each of these, we need to have a record. For example, on the burdens, there is an affidavit from an accounting firm on, uh, submitted by the defendants that says this is really not burdensome at all. Let, and they let, have let me ask a basic question. It doesn't require you to get into one by one. Suppose you have a state that doesn't want to have its money used uh, 
to assist unions. This is an anti-union state, and it, it adopts the same kind of law that you that, that you have. And it simply says none of none of this state's. Oh yes, you you can recognize unions if you like, but none of the money that we give you give who? Shall, shall be used uh, shall be used for uh, collective bargaining or for any uh, any activities involving unions. None of the money be? none of the monies we give to. The employer? Same, same the yes. To, I'm, not, I'm not sure which question you're To asking. the employer. No employer getting money from the state can expend any of our money, the, the same way yours is, uh, in, in collective bargaining with unions or in anything else. No, we're not stopping employers from doing that. Well, we you, just don't like unions, and it's our money, and we don't want this employer to use it for unions. Well, Would that be all right? I think that would be problematic, but only for this reason. If the employer is allowed to spend the state's money to bargain with non-union employees and, you know, medical researchers, whatever, negotiate contracts with them, but the state says you can't do it for collective bargaining, then that is exactly the Levatas case. That is a case in which the state is saying uh, your entitlement to uh, a state benefit turns on whether you are unionized or not. In this case, uh, we'll let the employer do this with non-union employees, but not with unionized employees. But if the state said we don't want to pay for well, why, the why cost does that of make negotiating, a, why does that make country? a difference? If it violates federal policy, it violates federal policy. Levita says you can't do it because it violates federal policy, which is which is to favor unionization and and and, and not to right. deter. But this statute neither favors nor well, deters. This statute say the same about says, that other one. You this statute simply says we don't want to subsidize either party, and as a practical matter, we are only subsidizing one party in union organizing. So, so does the statute I've posited. Just don't use state money. You can use all of, all of your own money to deal with unions. Just don't, we don't want our money used for it. Well, that but clearly would be banned, and I don't see why yours is any different. Well, because it would not be banned if what the states has said, we don't want you to use state money to uh, negotiate contracts with any of your employees. That would not be banned. Counsel, it would I be banned if they singled out only unionized employees that you're not allowed to use it with. You're allowed to use it with non-union employees. That also, would to get back to your responses on the procedural posture of the case, you said we don't know what the regulatory burden would be with respect to the economy. Right. In fact, there's a dispute, dispute of facts in the district court on that. But does it make any difference if the argument is, which is what I understood it to be, that you can't regulate at all? It's not simply that you can't regulate so long as it's not particularly burdensome. It's that you don't have the authority to regulate in this area at well, all. But our argument is this is not regulation. To say that the state money is not going to be spent for this is not regulation. Just well, as but Regan that's and Russ said. Answer. That gets to the spending clause question. And we're not, I mean, we can address that without deciding whether the regulations are particularly burdensome. You were saying, well, the accounting thing is not a big problem. Yes. But it doesn't mean that it's necessarily spending as opposed to regulation. Well, we are not regulating whether the employer opposes unions. What we are regulating is what they do with the state's money. That's the only regulation that's here. We've said don't use our money for this purpose. The only regulation that's going on is to see whether you that use the state's money. That doesn't seem to me to be responsive to my question. Your, your point was, well, we don't know how burdensome a particular regulation is. If you lose on the question of whether it's spending or regulation, we don't have to wait to see how burdensome it is if we think you're not entitled to regulate at all. Well, if you say that a state's 
position, we don't want our money to be used. You're getting back to the spending Is regulation. I'm putting that aside. I'm having — the problem I'm having with Your Honor's question is presuming the answer to something. The — if this is regulation, then there is a serious prospect of its being uh, preempted. But this is not regardless of whether Regardless of whether it's burdensome regulation. Right. If it's regulation. So why isn't that appropriate to deal with on summary judgment? Not the spending question. We have, that's a different issue. But if we th- there's no difference with respect to regulation, whether it's burdensome or not. So we don't have to have right. further proceedings on whether it's burdensome. But the only issue they raised on summary judgment is that to deny us your money, the state's money, is regulation. And our position is that to deny you the state's money is not regulation any more than it was in Reagan, in Rust, in this whole line of cases where the Court has said the government's choice not to subsidize an activity is not regulation. But on that point, you are in disagreement with the Ninth Circuit in Bank of Yes, we are. The Ninth Circuit misunderstood Boston Harbor. It thought Boston Harbor created two boxes that represented the whole world. It's you're either a market participant or you're a regulator. That's not what Boston Harbor said, and if you go back and look at it, what Boston Harbor said, if you regulate, you are vulnerable to preemption arguments. If you are not regulating, then you are free of preemption concerns. So the principal rationale for the Ninth Circuit's opinion is, is incorrect in your view? Well, it's not, no. If you, the Ninth Circuit also talked about the First Amendment and got it right. It said, when it talked about the, the dissent had said what the state is doing violates the First Amendment. And the Ninth Circuit's response was, no, that's not right. All this is is withholding a subsidy. And the First Amendment cases are clear. That's not regulation of speech. What the Ninth Circuit thought erroneously is that Boston Harbor had denied it the right to take that same view because it thought that Boston Harbor said that everything's regulation unless it's market participant. And that's not what Boston Harbor said. And this is not regulation. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Goldsmith, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I'd just like to make a few comments in rebuttal. Uh, First of all, uh, the preamble of the statute makes it absolutely clear as to what the state's purpose is. It's at page 3A of the appendix to the petition. It says it is the policy of the state not to interfere with an employee's choice about whether to join or to be represented by a labor union. For this reason, the state should not subsidize and so on. So clearly, the state has a labor policy position. It's a position, as I said at the outset, that is completely contrary to that of the NLRA. The NLRA's position is that employers, just like like unions, ought to have the right to speak in a non-coercive way to their employees. Secondly, it is not our position that um, the NLRA requires the state to fund activities. It is our position that the NLRA and the decisions of this Court make it abundantly clear that the states are to stay out of this area altogether, period. And that would be the case whether it was the kind of statute that Justice Scalia was posing a question about, whether it was, in effect, anti-union or pro-union. It doesn't matter. 
They're both preempted. The State has no business making labor policy. The decisions of this Court, the unanimous decisions of this Court in, in several circumstances, I think, make that very clear. And the Ninth Circuit did find that, for all practical purposes, uh, the State was regulating by making labor policy. If I can make two points about neutrality. First of all, this statute is anything but neutral. Uh, first of all, the State's policy is not one of neutrality. I just read from the preamble, they have a position. The position is that non-coercive employer speech interferes with employee free choice, and the statute follows that position. The decision to withdraw funds is not the same thing as being neutral. Um, Your Honor made a reference, Justice Scalia, to to the Hyde Amendment. The, The Hyde Amendment, Congress withdrew funds. From, uh, from, uh, from abortion uh, practitioners. It was not neutral about abortion. And California here has made a judgment about non-coercive speech. What about the Ling case that uh, Mr. Gottesman cited in response to that argument? The, the Ling case uh, seems to me to be completely off the point on this preemption issue. Look, there's no question, Your, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, that Congress can make judgments uh, about what it chooses to fund or not to fund. That did not open the door to the states to do whatever they wanted to do by way of funding or not funding. Ling addressed a constitutional. Well, but Ling said that that Congress was being neutral, not that it was making a choice about how to spend its funds. And I understood Mr. Gottesman's point to be that so too here California is being neutral. But California is is not being neutral, uh, not just because of what the preamble says, but because of the add-ons to the statute, if you will. California has taken it much farther than simply withdrawing a subsidy. California has taken it to the point that you're exposed to trouble damages, that you have minute tracking uh, and segregation of fund details. And California has taken it even one step farther and said, on the other hand, if you want to spend state money to facilitate union organizing, that's perfectly fine with us. Uh, you can spend money to give access to union representatives to property. You can uh, use state money to, um, uh, to facilitate uh, con- uh, neutrality agreements of one sort or another. Anything that would help a union organize uh, employees, that's fine by us. So California is not neutral in the same way that Ling was neutral. But again, I would, I would, I would suggest that, um, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, that Ling didn't open the door uh, any more than, than Rust or Regan uh, opened the door to the states to make labor policy by granting or withholding monies in any way that they saw fit. Thank, Thank you. you, Mr. Goldsmith. The case is submitted.